Good morning, First Baptist Church, and as always, it's an honor to be here. I was thinking a moment ago that we have been friends with your pastor and his wife now for more than 25 years, going all the way back to when we were together at Southern Seminary and members of the same church, Highview Baptist Church, and now having been at Southeastern for, I'm in my 20th year, I've been able to watch this church over the last two decades, and I cannot even begin to put into words uh, how God has blessed and what a faithful fellowship this is and what a wonderful partnership uh, that Southeastern has with your church. And so please know uh, we welcome your prayers and also that we pray for you and rejoice in the good work that God uh, is doing here. I was saved as a 10-year-old boy, uh, but unfortunately, I did not live for the Lord during my teenage years. Most of my classmates in junior high and high school did not know that I was a Christian. Uh, But when I was 19 years old, through a number of different uh, events, some of them very painful, uh, God got my attention, and I rededicated my life to Christ. Now, I know sometimes uh, people will kind of criticize the idea of rededication, but I have to tell you, it took for me. Uh, And in many ways, my rededication was more transforming than my conversion because I was older and I I understood more. And in a real sense, I fell in love with Jesus all over again. And one of the things I immediately wanted to do was share uh, my faith and share my relationship with Christ with others, especially uh, many of my classmates that were lost. Well, I didn't really know what to do, but fortunately at our church, uh, every Wednesday night, there was a layman by the name of Jack Fordham He would be in a classroom in the basement, and he would be there to train anyone to share their faith. He would use the method known as the Roman road. And uh, if only one person showed up, he would train them. If nobody showed up, he would pray. And even to this day, I remember very well the four movements of the Roman road. Number one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Number two, the wages of sin is death. But then turning more to the positive, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then from Romans 10, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I immediately went out and began to use that particular method to share the gospel. Then over the years uh, of being in ministry, I have been certified as a CWT trainer, continuous witness training. I've been certified in faith evangelistic training. In fact, as I was going through my files yesterday, I found my little faith visit outline that taught me how to share the gospel using this particular method. And while I was there, I began to dig through. Now, I have in the past used the four spiritual laws from Crew, uh, I've used Steps to Peace with God from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Evidently, I, I use them pretty regularly because they're all gone, and I, I could not find any of them. But I did find a few still in my file. Stop. Who do you think I am? That comes from John MacArthur. Uh, Z, Z uh, Generation uh, uh, from, again, Campus Crusade. Uh, no, from, uh, yes, Campus Crusade for Christ. Found one for children trusting Jesus found another one experiencing God's grace, another one that I've used in the past because Southeastern Seminary put it together, life's biggest question, and then another one that Southeastern put together, the story, which I really like a lot, 
and then one that's become very popular in recent uh, years, uh, written by my friend Jimmy Scroggins, uh, The Three Circles of Life. And uh, I even learned to use uh, in vacation Bible school, kind of as pre-evangelism, to be honest with you, and also on the mission field among those that cannot read uh, the wordless book. And uh, you can imagine what the, the black page stands for, our, our sin, and, and the pink page of God's love for us, and then the white page when you trust Christ, and then I don't know why it's yellow, but the one for how you pray and trust Christ. Now, I am very much aware of the fact uh, that many people find the use of evangelistic tracts troubling. Uh, some people have said, well, it's too rote, uh, it's a canned presentation. But I would submit to you uh, this morning that the problem is not with gospel tracts or evangelistic tracts. The problem is how they might be used by individuals. Furthermore, in my, again, preparation for this particular message, I came across an old article by J.I. Packer on evangelism, and he points out in that article that evangelistic tracts and literature in America actually started with the Puritans. I don't think anyone accused the Puritans of being theological lightweights. And so there is a strong tradition, even within the more reformed thinkers, of the value of evangelistic tracts. Of course, one of my heroes is the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. In fact, he's probably the greatest Baptist preacher ever. Uh, well, besides John the Baptist, but we'll, we'll put that off to the side. But Charles Spurgeon, who was very much committed uh, to doctrinal integrity and doctrinal purity, wrote both a book, The Soul Winner, and he also preached a sermon entitled The Soul Winner. And though I know that word is not much used today, personally, I think we might be well served to recover it once again. And in his book, The Soul Winner, Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, Soul winning is the chief business of the Christian. Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true believer. Well, if we want to find a wonderful example of what it means to be a soul winner in the Bible, I don't think we could look anywhere that would serve us better than the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, a passage that I simply entitle, Bringing People to Jesus, One Person at a time. Now, many of us, I recognize because I fall into this camp, uh, get nervous when it comes to sharing our faith, to doing soul winning. Uh, I am naturally an introvert, and so it is not my just normal demeanor to want to jump out and, and share the gospel. And yet I understand that sharing the gospel, number one, is simply being obedient in part to the Great Commission. And secondly, it is an outgrowth of my love, first and foremost, for the Lord Jesus, but also my love for the lost as well. So what do we find in this particular text that can guide us in understanding how it is that the Lord uses people to bring people to Jesus? And I have seven observations that I believe are thoroughly biblical and very well grounded theologically to help us in this regard. Number one, God uses people to tell people how to be saved. God uses people to tell people how to be saved. 
Of course, the context of the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch is the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. And what we have discovered, of course, is that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, immediately before he ascended back into heaven, the Lord Jesus said, you shall be witness to me when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, interestingly, they don't leave Jerusalem in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, or 7. In fact, they do not leave Jerusalem until the Lord brings persecution following the death of Stephen as the Apostle Paul begins to seek out Christians and have them arrested. In fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, as they underwent persecution, the church was scattered and went everywhere preaching the word. Well, one particular person is focused upon in Acts chapter 8, and it is the man Philip. And Philip, first of all, goes as a missionary outside the confines of Judea to Samaria. And God uses him there to cause a great revival to break out among the Samaritans. But then after being involved in that great revival, God takes him from the many and sends him to the one. Look at what it says there in verse 26 and 27. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, we should take note of the fact that throughout this passage, and it's true in all witnessing, the Holy Spirit takes the initiative. Not only does he take the initiative in sending Philip, he also takes the initiative in preparing the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch. In fact, throughout this text, you'll see an emphasis both upon the angel of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord as well. And I do not think that we should make a separation. Both of them are involved together in leading Philip to go to the Ethiopian eunuch. Again, let me quote Charles Spurgeon. God uses human means to bring sinners to salvation. It is his divine plan. The Lord's supreme majesty and power are seen all the more gloriously because he works by means. And I would even add by human means, because though God could use angels to be his soul winners, he does not choose to use them. He chooses to use me and he chooses to use you. Now, I love Philip. Uh, because the Bible speaks repeatedly about Philip. First in chapter 6, verse 5, he is one of the uh, original deacons. Uh, I used to say playfully, uh, but I know it's kind of offensive, but I'm going to say it playfully anyway. Imagine a deacon who's a soul winner. What a wonderful combination. In fact, if anybody should be soul winners, it ought to be deacons because God has called them out to lead and serve the church. And I can't think of any better way for a deacon to serve the church than to be a soul winner. God uses him also to evangelize the Samaritans. He was not afraid to cross those racial ethnic barriers that caused many Jews to pull back, not thinking that the Samaritan dogs were even worthy to be saved, but not Philip. And furthermore, we learn in chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, he was quite the, the father because he had four daughters that were prophetesses and prophesied 
for the Lord. And so Philip, the deacon, Philip, the evangelist, Philip, the uh, missionary, goes and he takes the gospel away from the many down to the one. And again, it's interesting to note that by doing that, God tells us and teaches us God cares for the one just as much as he does the many. I cannot help but think of, again, the parable of the Lord Jesus when he says that the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one. And just as the Father has that kind of love for all of us, he puts that same kind of love in our hearts. Gaza, by the way, was the last place you could find water before hitting the desert road from Jerusalem on the way down to Egypt. And so the angel of the Lord leads Philip. He tells him to imperatives, by the way, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and God uses people to tell people how to be saved. Number two. All persons, the somebodies and the nobodies, are sinners who need to be saved. All persons, the somebodies and the nobodies, are sinners who need to be saved. Look at verse 27 and 28. Now, in my Bible, I've written in red ink, unlike Jonah, unlike Jonah. He, that is Philip, rose and he went. And there he met an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace's queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Ethiopia uh, is not the country of Ethiopia as we know it. It was to be identified rather with the ancient uh, Nubian Empire, in fact, Homer in the Odyssey referred to it as the, quote, ends of the earth. It's also to be equated with the modern uh, kingdom of Cush in our Old Testament. Now, this man was a eunuch, uh, whether that was from some natural deformity or he had been made so uh, by man, more likely. In fact, it was very common uh, for kings and queens to those that would work within the palace to make the men eunuch. It made them uh, easier to control, and they were found to be very, very faithful. So this man, uh, also it says he was the, the, uh, uh, in charge of her treasury. Uh, today we might say he was the uh, minister of finance, uh, the minister of finance. But I find it very interesting as you look at him overall, there are a number of things that are true about him. Uh, on the one hand, he was an up-and-out individual. Oh, he was a man of position. He was a man of power. He was a man of great prestige. He, he was a man to be reckoned with, but he was still out. He, he did not have any relationship yet with the Lord. But furthermore, he was also down and out. You say, why? Because he was a eunuch. If you go back and read Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1, you learn that because he was a eunuch, uh, though he could come to Jerusalem to worship, he could not go into the temple. He was not allowed to go into the temple. And yet, he's reading in Isaiah chapter 53. And if he had just kept reading, I bet he did, 
He would get to chapter 56, and there he would learn of a wonderful promise that God makes to men like him. Listen to the word of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, and they shall not be cut off. And so the Lord God cares for the up and out, but the Lord God also cares for the down and out as well. And again, notice the obedience of Philip. Philip has gone to those that others were not willing to go to. First, the Samaritans, then trusting the Lord to go out to a desert road where he finds one individual. Of course, he most likely had his entourage with him as well. But he is the first one to introduce the gospel to the Samaritans. And there's no doubt that this is also the first Gentile to hear the gospel as well. He's kind of an anticipatory convert to what will happen in Acts chapter 10 to the house of Cornelius. And the Gentile comes in its fullness to the Gentiles as well. Thus, Philip is a man who is first willing to go where others had not gone. Secondly, he was willing to go where others needed to go as well. And I wonder if he had ringing his ears the word of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 4 and verse 35, where Jesus says, look at the fields, for they are white for harvest. And in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into the field. Again, Charles Spurgeon in the Soul Winner says, and I quote, to assail a soul with all the artillery, artillery of the gospel needs one awakened to his work. If you think you're going to win souls, you must throw your soul into your work just as a warrior must throw his soul into battle or victory will not be yours. And all persons, the somebodies, the nobodies, everybody are sinners who need to be saved. Number three, the Holy Spirit will both lead us to and prepare the hearts of the persons we need to witness to. The Bible says again in verse 28 that he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and then in verse or 27, and then in verse 28, he was returning, and he was seated uh, in the chariot. And he was reading out loud, which was the normal pattern in that day, reading the prophet Isaiah. And now notice again the work of the Spirit. The Spirit has sent him out to the Gaza road, and now the Spirit says to Philip, again, a word of command, go over and join the chariot. And again, unlike Jonah, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. This is what I like to refer to as a divine appointment in the desert. Uh, Philip amazingly finds this man going down the road, and he runs up to him, and he begins to ask questions, which, by the way, is a wonderful principle in sharing your faith. 
In other words, when we share the gospel, we're not interested in just talking. Uh, good evangelists and good soul winners, they do a lot of listening. Uh, they try to understand where a person is and start where they are. And they try to let them know, I genuinely care about who you are. I genuinely care about what you think. I genuinely care about you. And again, I recognize the, the danger in thinking you're some kind of spiritual hitman who goes out with your gospel track to, 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 to put a notch in your Bible every time you engage somebody. And sometimes God in his kindness like this allows it to happen. But my experience over the years is that most people that we are used by God to bring to faith in Christ, uh, it doesn't happen the first time. It may not even happen the second, the third, the fourth, or the fifth. I'm often fond of asking the question, how many of you in this room today came to Christ the very first time you heard the gospel? Raise your hand. Now, there's one right here. Ain't none over there. Ain't none in the back. Ain't none over here. I see one more, so there's two. All right, two out of about what, 500 people? That's about right. Because most of us did not come to Christ the first time we heard the gospel. Uh, well, by the way, when we were at uh, the Southern Baptist Convention this year on uh, Tuesday night, I attended uh, and was part of the 9 March meeting. And uh, my friend and Andy's friend, Mark Dever, uh, while we were there, said, I just have a, a question to ask all of you. I'm going to ask you the same question. He said, how many of you were influenced by your mother? in coming to faith in Christ, would you raise your hand? How many of you were influenced by your mother? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, that's a good number of hands. And I suspect it wasn't the first time your mother talked to you about Jesus. Uh, my mother, Emma Lou Aiken, was one of the kindest, godliest people that you would ever know. And as a little boy, she had bought me a series of Bible books that, of course, thankfully were illustrated. And I would go through those things all the time. I don't know why. I really liked the one on the book from Revelation because they had pictures of dragons and they had a picture of the Antichrist wilding this wild beast. And I, I just thought those were cool. Uh, thankfully, I didn't understand all that was involved in that. It scared the bejabbers out of me. But I would get with my mother. I'd say, Mama, would you come read the book to me? And she never, ever turned me down. She would always sit down with me and read for a while in those Bible books. And my mother had a massive, massive uh, impact on my coming to faith in Christ. But it was not the first time I heard the gospel. It was after many, many, many exposures to the good news that Jesus loves me, that he died for me, that he was raised from the dead. And if I would repent of my sins and put my faith and trust in him, he would save me. Now, there's no question that this was a divine appointment because he happens to be, in all places, the book of Isaiah, which leads us to our fourth observation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message that saves and that we must proclaim for salvation. When I was at Southern Seminary, I made a wonderful friendship with the dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism. His name was Tom Rayner. In fact, uh, the Davises and the Aikens and the Rayners were all, again, members of the same church. And in his book, Tom Rayner writes, and I quote, some constants in evangelism are evident. People are still lost and condemned if they do not embrace faith in Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel never changes. 
Jesus Christ is and always will be the only way, truth, and life. John chapter 14 and verse 6. Of course, Dr. Rayner is referring to what theologians call the exclusivity of the gospel, simply meaning that there is no other way for us to be saved other than through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. In fact, I, I'm often asked by uh, young ministers, what do you think are going to be the, the pressing issues upon the church uh, in the years and, and decades ahead? And I always say, well, I think there are two in particular. Number one, the issue of gender and how we deal with the issue of what the Bible says about gender in spite of what the culture says about gender. And it's going to become more and more difficult because of the criticism, because of the opposition, perhaps someday even the persecution. But the second issue is the exclusivity of the gospel. For us in this day when our culture is so pluralistic in its thinking and so individualistic in its thinking, for us actually to say there is only one Savior and his name is Jesus is virtually unthinkable. It's hard for the secular culture to realize and believe that such Neanderthals are still walking the earth. And yet if we're going to be faithful to the word of God and faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we cannot move back from the reality there is only one Savior and his name is Jesus. Well, providentially, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch is not reading just any passage in the Old Testament scriptures. He's reading one of the most important passages in all the Bible concerning the work of Christ. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 through chapter 53 verse 12. And in particular, it is noted that he is reading verse 7 and verse 8 at this particular moment. So verse 32, now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. By the way, Peter quotes that in first Peter chapter two, verses 22 and following verse 33 in his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation for his life was taken away from the earth. He talks about the fact that this individual was brutally murdered. He talks about the fact that this individual was humiliated and judged unfairly. He talks about the fact that this individual was denied a, a heritage and, and was denied a prodigy because his life was taken away before he ever had the chance to have any kind of offspring. And so verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? First time I ever had the uh, honor, the privilege of going to Israel, uh, we happened to fly the Israeli airline El Al. And uh, that airline was filled with uh, Israeli citizens and quite a number of, of rabbis. And so uh, during the trip, I, I got up to walk around just to stretch my legs. And it just so happened that I walked up and there was a young Jewish rabbi there. 
And so uh, we began a conversation. I shared with him this was the first time I, was, I had ever had the opportunity to go to Israel and how excited I was about it. And uh, I, I said to him, so you're studying to be a rabbi. And he said, I, I am. I said, well, that's wonderful. I said, uh, can I ask you a question? What do you think about Isaiah chapter 53 in uh, that prophet? And I'll never forget uh, what he said to me. He said, uh, well, I've never read Isaiah 53. And I was really stunned. And I said, you, you've never read Isaiah 53? He said, no. He said, uh, honestly, we don't read a whole lot other than the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so I simply said, well, could I go get my Bible and read it to you? And sure. So I went and got my Bible. I read Isaiah 53. And when I finished, he said, well, I have a question. Who is the prophet talking about? And he literally said, Andy, himself or somebody else? And I said, well, that's a great question. And I have the answer for you. And I did what the Bible says Philip did in verse 35. He opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news. It could be translated, he proclaimed the good news, or if you like, he evangelized about Jesus. By the way, when I finished sharing the gospel with the young rabbi, he said, well, that's all very interesting. I will need to consider that further. And I said, I would encourage you to do so. So again, in God's kind providence, he's exactly where he needs to be to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Charles Spurgeon said of Isaiah 53, it is a Bible in miniature, the gospel in its very essence. Kyle Yates, who taught at Southern Seminary, said it was the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. And I would just simply remind all of us of this this morning. When Philip did his work of evangelism, there was only one Bible, the Old Testament scriptures as we call them. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is all through the Old Testament if you just read it rightly. And no passage along with Psalm 22. In fact, if I had the opportunity in the future to share the gospel in particular with a Jewish person, I would make a beeline either to or both to Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm, and Isaiah chapter 53 because the gospel screams out from both of those passages. I love what my hero Adrian Rogers said when it comes to just the very essence of the gospel. Some may preach the gospel better, but no one can preach a better gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message that saves and that we must proclaim for salvation. Number five, baptism is the proper and immediate response to believing the gospel. I don't know where he worked it in. Uh, Luke doesn't give us the whole story of their conversation, but somewhere along the road, uh, the uh, uh, eunuch was informed by Philip that when one repents of their sin and when one believes in Jesus Christ, the proper response is always believers' baptism. Verse 36, and as they were going along the road and they came to some water, the eunuch said, see, 
Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, I want to just deal with a textual issue very quickly. If you were here this morning and you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you may have this verse that is in a footnote in almost all the other translations, including the ESV. If you look at the bottom of the page, it says with a number one by it, some manuscripts add all or most of verse 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I want to be fair. That verse is not in hardly any of the earliest Greek manuscripts. And as a result, most English translations today will not include it in the body, but they will note with a footnote that in some, and they should add the word late manuscripts, this verse appears. But I do agree with what my colleague at Southern Seminary, uh, John Paul Hill, argues. He says, though verse 37 uh, probably was not a part of the original uh, text of the book of Acts, it most likely became an early Christian baptismal confession. And I think that's absolutely correct, so that though we don't have it in the text, at least it is highly likely that uh, the eunuch said something along the lines, I do believe with all of my heart that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and therefore what prevents me from being baptized? In verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptizo, he baptized him. Now, listen to me very carefully this morning. Baptism is not essential to salvation. There's nothing in the Bible that says that we must be baptized in order to be saved. Salvation is all by grace through faith. No works are involved whatsoever. Having said that, though baptism is not essential to salvation, baptism is essential to obedience. And an un baptized believer in the first century church would have made absolutely no sense to that body of believers. So if you happen to be here today and you have repented of your sins and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, but for whatever reason, you have never been baptized as a believer by immersion, then I want to lovingly admonish you, encourage you your next step is to be baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like the, the wedding ring symbolizes that one is married. It's a very good analogy. And baptism is simply the means of saying to the world, I belong to and I follow Jesus and I'm not ashamed to declare to the whole world that he is my Lord and he is my Savior. It is always the proper and, yes, in the Bible, immediate response to believing the gospel. Number six, there's always rejoicing when a soul is saved by Jesus. Verse 39 simply says, and when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, 
And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. They went in different directions. The, the Ethiopian eunuch made his way on to the south, and Philip turned north and began to continue the work of evangelism, eventually arriving almost 70 miles to the north in a city called Caesarea. Now, I've always wondered, well, what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch? And there are some early church traditions. Now, again, we have to be a little careful and uh, can always trust everything that is said by the early fathers. But at least in this case, I like what Irenaeus said about what happened to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, regarding this man, he said, this man, Simeon, he gave him a name. Uh, the eunuch was also sent into the regions of Ethiopia. And he preached what he himself believed that there was one God preached by the prophets, but that the Son of God had already made his appearance in human flesh, had been led as a sheep to the slaughter, and all the other statements which the prophets made regarding him were true. And at least there is one tradition that says he returned to his country sharing and evangelizing. And we do know that when we make our way into that part of the world in the third, fourth, and fifth century, already there was a church present in that part of the world. Think about it again. A Gentile, a black man, an eunuch. He is sent to evangelize that part of the world. Never would that have happened had Philip not been obedient to leave the many and just seek out the one, which leads me to my seventh and final observation. Witnessing is to be a way of life for those who follow Jesus. Again, verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, what did he do? Well, what he always did, he preached the gospel. He evangelized all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let me close by a few observations. Number one, I don't believe any church will ever be evangelistic and missional by accident. It must be intentional. I, I've, I've known churches that just naturally uh, do expository preaching because their pastor loves expository preaching. I've known churches that just naturally are, are good uh, at discipleship. I've known churches that are just naturally good at doing community. I've never known a church that just naturally did missions and evangelism. Why? Because it's hard work. And in many ways, it goes against our fears and, and even sometimes our pride. But I believe we cannot be the kind of church that God wants us to be unless the nations and the city right where we live is on our heart and we're doing what we need to do to train and then send out those who will share the good news of Jesus Christ. Again, I quote Spurgeon, our Lord Jesus calls us to be fishermen and no other fishermen have such labor, such sorrow and such delight as we have. What a happy thing it is that you may win souls for Jesus and may do this though you even abide in your secular calling. What is he saying? Simply this, doing the work of a soul winner is not just the job of the ministers. It is the job of every single follower 
of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, lost people matter to God, and therefore lost people must matter to us. May God give all of us, beginning with Danny Aiken, a red hot zeal for the salvation of the lost. May we indeed be faithful soul winners because our Lord Jesus has commanded it and lost people need it to be so. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I thank you how he was faithful to go where you told him to go and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that he was willing to cross racial and ethnic barriers to evangelize the Samaritans. And I thank you, Lord, that he continued to cross those racial, ethnic barriers to share the gospel with an African, a Gentile. Lord, there are lost people all around us from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Here we are in the triangle, Duke University right down the road, University of North Carolina not that far away, NC State over in Raleigh, and Lord, all of those schools and many others are filled with lost people, many of them from the nations. They're here. They're lonely. They need friends. Lord, I was also taught to do friendship evangelism. And Lord, that's a great opportunity to open the door to love them well. And because we cared for them and loved them well, the door then opens for us to give them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for my church, for my school, for this wonderful church, that we indeed will have a red hot zeal for the souls of lost people. And that, Lord, we will not shy away from that word soul winner. It may not be very popular today, but I think it's a word worth recovering. And so, Lord, may that indeed be our heartbeat until you come again. We ask and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.